This is a STEAM Channel program on UCTV. Go full STEAM ahead at uctv.tv slash STEAM, where science, technology, engineering, arts, and math converge. I get excited about science and, and what it means. What were your first steps that you took to get where you are now? I give a lot of talks. I've given a lot of talks in front of thousands and thousands of people. And I can tell you from my heart that I've never been more excited about a talk than the one I'm, I'm giving today. And it's really true. And, and the reason why I have been so excited and looking forward to this moment is because you are the future. If I can plant the seed of something positive in one of you today, I will be able to affect the future positively. And that's the reason for my great excitement about being here. All right? And remember that you are the future of this country, of this community, of the world. And you will make that future. I was the future once. I was uh, younger, like you are. I, was, I went to medical school in Argentina. Um, and then I came to the United States. I thought I was really smart. Um, I thought I was a great student. But I came to the States and, you know, I had to start from scratch because, hey, who knows about, you know, a medical school in Argentina. I had to prove myself again. And that was an incredible lesson in uh, humility. And how did, I, how did I start? You know, I thought, as I said, I thought I was really smart. I'm sure a lot of you think that you're really smart. But I think that in life, that was a great lesson for me, you know, a lesson of humility. I have to prove it. It doesn't matter who, what you said you are. You had to prove it. So I, had, I started working in the Bronx. I, I worked in, in New York. The Bronx is a neighborhood in New York. It was really rough at the time. And I worked uh, there uh, for a year at a hospital. That was a, it really was like a war zone. So I was, you know, was a, the, 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 the area was really rough. And I was taking care of a lot of people in that area. And I learned a ton. And then I was able to get to uh, uh, academic places. I went to Minnesota. I went to uh, Cornell. And then I ended up at, at Duke, at Duke University, where I was a scientist. I was, a, more importantly, I was a doctor. I was a doctor of HIV patients. And that was an incredible moment in history because a lot of young people were dying, a lot of them. You cannot imagine today because there's nothing like it. It's, you know, like it's Ebola right now in Africa, which is thankfully dying off. Well, that's the way it was in our country in the late 80s and early 90s. A lot of young people dying. So I say if I had a clinic of 400 patients, I lost about 150 patients a year. So I lost about three patients a week. Okay, and these were my friends. These were people I really cared for. All right, and it was an incredible moment in history. I mean, it was, for me, it was a very special moment because there was a limitation. I couldn't do much. We didn't have the tools. But thanks to science, we were able to go back to the basics and understand what was happening. The epidemic started in 1981, and these were young people that were dying of diseases that were very un unusual, infections that were very unusual. 
And we couldn't figure it out. For several years, people didn't know why this was happening. Until three to four years later, we figured out it was a virus that was causing it. All right, again, science at its best. What's the problem? How are we going to figure it out? All right, and in a very short period of time, we discovered it was a virus. We were able to test blood because what happened at the time is through blood donations, the disease was spreading. And without knowing what was causing it, it was very difficult to screen that blood. Once we figured out it was a virus, then we were able to, to diagnose the, the, infected, uh, the, the markers of infection, and we were able to clean up the blood supply. Can you imagine at the time? We didn't, it was scary. To get a blood transfusion was scary because you didn't know if you were going to get uh, HIV or not. Just imagine the world we lived in. It's difficult for you guys to think that now, only 35 years later, but that's the way it was. And so a lot of people dying. We figured out it was a virus. And in 1987, so the virus was discovered in 1984. In 1987, we had a drug. That's how fast science worked. All right? And the drug we discovered by testing randomly. And we figured out, we took the virus in a test tube, we put uh, uh, different drugs, and we figured out that one of them worked. We gave it to people. Only 45 patients got the drug, and the FDA approved it because people were dying by, by lots of them. And so in a very short period of time, we discovered a drug. Within 10 years, in 1996, we, were able, we figured out that one, one drug alone wasn't enough because the virus was able to work its way around them, what we call drug resistance. We are seeing the same effects in cancer now. We needed more than one drug. We needed a combination of drugs. By 1996, we had built a combination. And I remember vividly, I had a patient uh, that came in, was about to die. And people, but this was in, um, this is how um, I remember. This was, say, March 1st of 1996, and the drug had been approved February 15th of 1996, but people didn't know about it yet. I mean, they didn't know how to use them. They didn't know how to change expectations, and in that moment, uh, I said, I'm going to treat this patient. I'm going to make this patient better, and people look at me and say, you're crazy. Let the poor guy die. I mean, like, you know, he, people die of HIV, and I said, no, now it's different. Science has allowed us to think differently and to do things differently, and 45 days later, he walked out of the hospital. I never remember as an experience of the impact that science can have. You know, it's kind of like, it's kind of scary because it makes you feel omnipotent in a way. Because like, wow, all of a sudden somebody was dying, I was able to make them live. And if they had ended in another doctor that day, they would have died. Okay, if I had ended in 99% of people that wasn't really aware of what was going on, the latest news, the latest scientific news, the latest science... He would have died because they didn't know, all right? But I think this tells you, I mean, I, I tell you this story. And then from then on, I went on to work at, in the industry and, and develop five drugs that were quite an improvement over the ones we had. And then HIV today is a disease where it's the same as having diabetes. You take a drug and you can live to be 85. You will die with HIV, but you will not die of HIV, all right? We made it into a chronic illness. So that was science at its best, I would say. Um, if you think about it, there's two types of science. One science is about learning the truth, learning the truth about reality. And there's another th science that is about how do we apply that, that learning to solving a problem. Okay? That's applied science. One 
is done in academic settings mostly, which is about discovering the truth. All right? What is behind the observations we make? All right? And the other one is about, here's a problem, how I'm going to solve it. All right? It's two different ways to think about science. I work for a large company. It's the sixth largest company in the world, and we have a wonderful facility here that a lot of your friends and colleagues visited uh, with uh, last week. I'm Diego. Diego? Yeah. Me too. You're Diego. Oh, my God. The first Diego I've been in San Diego. Annika. Annika? Yeah. Nice to meet you. There we, we are in the process of discovering drugs, so meaning what are the problems? We think about diseases, and we think about unmet medical needs, problems that don't have a, a solution today, and we try to figure out how we're going to fix them. I have to tell you, there's, there's very few things as fun in life as when you make an observation and you, you believe that you're the first person ever to observe that. Okay, when you're in the lab and you say, holy cow, look at that. So that's how it may happen. And you start understanding reality, it's exhilarating. It's absolutely, you walk, you walk on water in those moments. You know, being a doctor, I have uh, been on the side of thinking of science as a tool, um, think using science to help people, and I've been on the side also of trying to figure out how to develop those tools. Just think that until 1620, all right, that's about 400 years ago, most people, most people, still thought that the sun went around the earth. Most people thought that the stars went around the earth. Just think of that. Only 400 years ago, it seems obvious to you that that cannot be possible. All right? But people didn't have the tools to, uh, to have a different way of thinking. And that different way of thinking is, I would say, is, is, is epitomized by the question, how do you know? How do you know something? Prove it to me. All right? It cannot be because I said so. It cannot be because a book says so. It has to be like, prove it to me. You have to prove it to me in a way that everybody can agree that there's evidence there that that is reality. All right? And that's the language of science. That's what science is about. Okay? That's why we live in an incredible time in history. We're very fortunate. It seems obvious to us so many things. I always think, okay, how somebody in 1245, what did, what did they understand about reality? Just imagine, they didn't have the tools. That's why those societies, they were born and died in the same place, the same culture, the same society. There may have been a war here, a war there that displaced them, you know, but essentially what they understood about the world was exactly the same. They, they were born and died in the same world. Think about that. Just think about, like, the world you were born in, in somewhere between 1996 and 2000, and the world we live in today. Think how different it is. Okay? The iPhone or, you know, smartphones didn't exist until 2008. Before that, they didn't exist. That's how much the world has changed in six years. And it has changed so much. Why has it changed so much? Science has a huge part in that. All right? Because science enables us to understand 
the world, and to, through that understanding, create solutions to human problems. One could be people that are dying of HIV. The other one could be an area that has, you know, no access to energy. The other one could be how to create better communications tools that are less expensive and more precise. The other one could be how could we put rockets in, 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 in space or satellites in space at a much lower cost. All of those are human needs that are addressed by science. And so science is essentially using all those tools. So I personally think that um, science is an unbelievably uh, rewarding space. And it's very broad. It's extremely broad. The, the applicability of science. If you think about everything you do, your shoes, your shirt, everything you're wearing, how you're talking, this room, most of it is based on scientific principles and discoveries. Everything you do in life, really, think about it. And so you would be, you would be in the possession of the means, of the tools to understand that world and make it better. All right, and that's that's the reason why I love uh, science. How how did I how did I get here? All right, uh, because I was where you were, and maybe a little a little bit of a story. Um, I came to the states, as I told you, and uh, I I always wanted to help people. That's why I went to medical school. I felt that um, helping people was my call, my mission. And uh, I thought that being a doctor would be a great way of doing that. And I have to say, I have to say, like being a doctor or being a teacher or being a nurse or being, uh, you know, a healthcare, healthcare provider or being an educator, I think that those are, those are professions that are extremely rewarding in that you are directly helping other people be better. Be better because of their health be better because of the education, all right? So it was, it's an, it's an they're unbelievably reward, rewarding uh, professions from the standpoint of what you get by helping others. Um, so for me, that was my call for medicine. But then I discovered that science was pulling me, understanding more about the world. And as I had mentioned to you before, when you are in a lab and you make an observation, you're on your own. Sometimes, often it is as late at night that you're, you end up making an observation and you're there in, in that room by yourself and you are in the presence of truth comes to you. Oof. All right, you're observing it and all of a sudden it comes to you. That moment is like, wow, I understand one part of reality and I may be the first person to understand that because I'm here in front of that reality. It's an exhilarating moment. It's an exhilarating moment. So, I can totally see why so many people have such passion for science. Because that moment of you and the truth, the intimacy of you and the truth, is absolutely uh, unique. But what, as you think about the world, um, and you think about your choices, I, I would say to you that there are several elements that are really important to make you Successful, although success is not a term I really like because some people, uh, I would say happy, 
and productive. And I would say the, the best success one can have as a human being, and it took me a while to understand this, and I have a few white hairs to, in the process to learning that, is for you to be a positive influence to the people you encounter in the world. For you to be a positive influence in the people you encounter in the world. Right? If you can do that, you've succeeded. No matter if it's one person, 10,000 people, a million people. You being a positive influence in the world. And there are elements that are important for you to do that. Of course, studying is important because it gives you knowledge. And the knowledge is a foundation. It's what, it's what you stepped on. Without knowledge, you don't have any, any basis, all right? You, we need a foundation of knowledge. But that's all studying gives you, okay? It's a foundation. There's many other elements that are really important. One is thinking, and thinking critically. And a great way to think critically, guys, is to talk about things and to disagree, all right? That's really, really, really important because that's what forces you to understand other people's perspectives and other perspectives that challenge yours. And then it allows you to have, to, by thinking through them, present a compelling case to support your position. All right? That process, that wiring that goes on in your brain as you have you know, difference of opinion cordially with other people is a critical element of success in life. Because when we, when we look at people, right, a company like Johnson & Johnson, we're looking to hire people. We, we, have, we hire 125,000 employees around the world, around 50,000 in the United States. Okay? How, what happens when those people come to you? What happens when I get a, a CV? I get people, you know, CVs every week. I get lots of them because a lot of people are applying for jobs. And what are those elements that are important? The knowledge, okay? The basis is key. I mean, it's, it's not, not key. The basis is a starter. The knowledge is a starter. But it's not the end. All right? The elements that are, make people really successful in organizations, in society, are more about, I always say, there's a lot of smart people in the world. So it's not the smartness. It's your emotional smartness. Okay? That I would say, and I talk to my kids about that a lot, is your emotional smartness. Okay, first of all, a smile. Okay, you're positive. You're a positive influence in the world. It's always a smile. You look at somebody in the eyes. Okay, don't underestimate those elements. They're huge in an interaction with other human beings. All right, the capacity to deal with conflict respectfully. That's another huge element in life, in success. And one has to work at it, okay? I had to work a lot at it because I got really mad, you know, I mean, and I was not able to kind of like control myself and be in control and be able to express things the, the way I really felt them. That's what happens when one loses control. If I lose control, I'm not in control. What do you lose control? You lose control of yourself. There's no more vulnerable situation you could possibly in than when you lose control of yourself. All right? So that for me was a big learning. Diego, you have to be in control of yourself. Okay? That was mastering yourself. That's a huge skill for success in life, to be impactful. Because we're going to disagree with other people all the time. It's a given. 
Okay, how could we, if we all thought the same, we wouldn't go anywhere. But how, come in those, how can we make of those disagreements something that builds humanity, builds the knowledge of humanity, makes us impactful, all right? Is by being able to master interactions in conflict and make of that conflict something that actually adds and doesn't detract. That, guys, is huge. It's huge. You may not understand it right now, but someday you will. And I'm telling you, it's a huge skill. So as you think about your choices, as you think about um, the life you want to lead, another important element is what do you have fun doing? Okay, because I always say everything has to be fun. If it's not fun, it's not going to work in the long run. You really have to enjoy it. Okay? And so you have to ask yourself, what do I really enjoy? What are those things that make me, what are, that make me have fun? And whatever you do, try to do it by having fun. That doesn't mean that you don't work incredibly hard. Okay? You can have fun and work incredibly hard. They are not, they are not uh, contradictory, those statements. But you really have to do things that you have fun doing. Um, the other element that is important is about, as I, as, as I said, is about trying to always be a positive influence on others. All right? And that's something that, again, I have, you know, you could say that I, have, I am successful if you look at my curriculum, okay? But that's nothing. At the, I mean, where I am right now, and I look at my life, that is not really why I see myself and I'm happy who, with who I have become. That really is not that important. What's more important is the positive influence I have in the world, the positive influence I have on people with whom I interact. Okay, at the end of the day, that is you're going to be how you're going to judge yourself. Okay, and that is going to be super important. I'm Brianna Jallo, and I go to SET. Um, what are you trying to do with your research right now, and what are you trying to accomplish? We are working right now on several areas. We're working on several different diseases that we picked, you know, to try to address. Um, one of those diseases is uh, Alzheimer's disease. We're trying to, you know, when, when people have Alzheimer's disease, they have dementia, all right? And that dementia means your cognition your capacity to think, remember, have a life, goes down, declines. What we're trying to do is slow down the decline of that deterioration, right? It's really tough because what happens in Alzheimer's is a lot of your cells are dying, and it's really difficult to replace cells in the brain. So the only way it can work in Alzheimer's disease is if we can prevent those cells from dying because once they die, it's very difficult for them to come back. So the problem is that people are developing the loss of cells long before they start having dementia. So how do you find them early enough so you can start preventing the loss of those cells? That's kind of like the big questions we're trying to answer today. Not only have the drugs, but also be able to detect those patients early enough so you can prevent the loss of cells. We are trying to cure diseases like hepatitis C, 
Hepatitis C is a virus that affects your liver and causes an inflammation, and sometimes it can cause cancer. We're trying to find drugs to take care of that. We're trying to find drugs to treat diseases like cancer. And cancer, again, cancer is a thousand diseases. We call it cancer, but now that we have discovered the genetic elements that determine cancer, we can look at the cells, and we know that it's a thousand diseases. So we're trying to figure out each one of these diseases at a time so we can improve the, the survival in the patients that have cancer. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for the question. I'm, my name is Cameron Ransom, and um, what advice can you give to people wanting to pursue a career like yours? First of all, believe in yourselves. It's very important. And think big. Okay? Start small, but think big. I always say, think big. And thinking big means that try to really think that you can be that person. Any of you can be like me. Any of you can be my boss. And I mean it. All right? Any of you can be my boss. But it's just you have to set yourselves to work hard and do it. And we live in a country where we're very privileged. I come from a country that is not like this one, all right, where working hard and being really good doesn't guarantee success, all right? But we live in a country where if you work hard and you're good, most people do well, okay? So effort, perseverance, sacrifice is really important. And the other element, and I know it's hard, I have children your age too. One thing that is a really important value is called delayed gratification. Okay? Delayed gratification means that I want to feel good right now. All right? So I want to feel good right now. And I don't want to feel bad right now. Delayed gratification means... I can feel bad right now means I'm sitting down and studying for five hours because I want to feel good 10 years from now. That's called delayed gratification. That's a very evolved way of thinking for a, for a, for a creature like ours, okay, human beings. That we've been, you know, we are, if we, we've, we've evolved to have immediate gratification. I want it now, okay? It's not like, wow, it's okay that, you know, my butt is sore for five hours today because, you know what, ten years from now I'm going to get the rewards. But you will. You will. And that rationalization, that, that, that tolerance of sacrifice is what, at the end of the day, makes success. I know it's hard, guys, but it works. It really works. And I spend a lot of time sitting down and saying, what am I doing here? I really want to go out and play with my friends, Okay. But I didn't. And I, I, I remember, I remember, they used to call, ring the bell, you want to come to the pool with us? And you want to, no, I have to study for an exam. And I remember thinking, what an idiot I am. These guys are having fun. And I mean, you know, by myself, you know, in this dark room, studying. And I was like, what are you thinking, Diego? That's, you're crazy, go out. But I was like, no, I need to study because, I, you know, I need an exam and I want to do well. And that now, I am... I am reaping the rewards of that moment, okay? But at the time, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy, guys, because I wanted to go out and have fun, okay? But that element is critical for long-term success. Thank you for your question. Thank you. Uh, so my question is, 
Sir, how close are you actually to finding the total cure of HIV or AIDS? Total cure for HIV or AIDS? I've been hearing this question for a long time. I would say practically HIV in the developed world, where people have access to medications, I would say practically for me it's cured in that it's not that it's gone from your body, but you can lead a normal life, a completely normal life. You can have children, you can you know, do whatever you want, you can exercise, you can eat whatever you want, and you will die of something else, of other causes. All right? So I would say from a practical perspective, that's pretty good. Curing would mean that you have the infection and it's gone. Okay, for example, you cannot cure diabetes today. All right, diabetes is something you always have to be watching your diet. You always have to be, you know, watch what you eat and take medications until the day you die. HIV is very much like that today. To cure HIV would mean to eradicate it. Means that it's not in your body anymore. So if you take the medication, it goes away. It's complicated for several biologic reasons that we understand really well. The virus is in the cells dormant, and it doesn't come up, and it could stay there for decades. So we are trying to sort out by, what, by which mechanisms we can identify those few cells in which the virus is sleeping and see whether you can, we can get rid of them. It's a complicated technical problem. I think someday we will, but I think effectively today in people that have access to medication, the situation is pretty good. Do you test your research on certain patients uh, depending on your research? When you do research in in medicine, what what happens is that you have to first come up with, you know, uh, the foundation for, for the drugs of the future, and you do that in the test tube, okay? And there are different, many different mechanisms by which you can have an idea what the drug may be doing once it gets into a into multicellular organism or multi-organ organism. And then you go, the next step is you go into animals. And you go into animals to try to predict what's going to happen once you go into a mammal, for example, right? And that's, that, you do all those things to lower the risk when you go to humans, to lower the risk that something really bad is going to happen when you go to humans, okay? And then you conduct studies in humans, those are called clinical trials. And there are different stages of clinical trials. You have the phase one, called phase one clinical trial. It's the first time you go into a person. You give them one dose or a few doses, and you watch them closely. And then you try to figure out what is the dose, because you don't know what the dose is for the person. So you have to give different doses called escalating doses. That's a phase one trial. Phase two trial is to try to figure out whether the drug has the intended effect. Say you wanted to take care of blood pressure, and then you can see whether indeed the drug lowers blood pressure. And the last step is called phase three trials that are done with huge statistical power so you can demonstrate unequivocally that the drug is safe and effective. Okay, once you do that in large trials with, you know, where the observations, for those of you that are doing statistics, the observations, you can de- de- derive from the observation that are most likely not due to chance, not due to chance, then that drug can get approved to be marketed and sold. Okay, in this country, the entity that governs that process 
is called the FDA. So every drug that is in the market today, every drug you take, you go to the store, get Tylenol or whatever you, you get, and, or prescription, no prescription, in order for it to be there for you to take it, it has gone through the process, the approval process by the FDA to be able to sell that drug. Okay? That's how you get there. Thank you for your question. Thank you. From your experience, how do studies funded independently differ from those funded by larger corporations? The studies different from those by, done by independent corporations? Is that what you're saying? So having an experimental study that's funded privately and independently Good versus... Question. Good question. Obviously, we all have a conflict of interest, okay? Conflict of interest is we're humans. We have a subjective perspective. Every one of them has a subjective perspective. There's no such a thing as an objective perspective coming from a human being because we're human, all right? So we have conflicts. Conflicts of interest is our perspective. We are looking at things from one perspective. Each of us has a different perspective because of where we're sitting, of who we are. So when a company does studies, of course, they, are, they, want, they would like those studies to be positive because they're investing a lot of money and they would like those studies to be positive. And so therefore, they are naturally biased to try to find something positive in those studies. Okay? So in order to, pre, to, to control that bias of, you know, an, an observation that will be slanted and it's not going to be objective, there's a process that exists. Part of that process is the conduct of those clinical trials and those, how, how those clinical trials are set up. Because if I told you that this drug works, my, my mom has cancer, this drug works. How do you know? Oh, because uh, I, you know, a friend of mine took the drug and it worked. And I'm like, okay, what does that have to do with the drug that works or not? I don't know. That doesn't answer the question whether the drug works or not. I have to prove it to you, remember, by the scientific method. The scientific method is a method that allows me to answer a question in a set of circumstances that are standardized. Okay, so the subjects that are going into that study have to be very similar. So I'm comparing apples and apples. The study has to be blinded. So nobody knows what medication or what intervention they are receiving. Has to be blinded not only to the patients, but blinded to the, to the physicians. Because otherwise the physician can also be biased. All right? So you have double-blind trials, double-blinded, that have certain endpoints that are, are validated by many different processes. And so there is a standard by which you can say that a drug works or not. And then there's independent reviews. Okay? We have to prevent any mal, mal, malfeasance or, or misbehavior. We have independent people that come and analyze what we do, all right? So we try to abide by very high standards. By the same token, when you look at all publications of scientific work, all right, about, I would say, over time, I would say about only 40% of them can be replicated, all right? So that means that even in the academic world, that people don't have a direct financial incentive like someone working for a company has, 
But they have other sets of conflicts, other sets of conflicts of interest, because they are interested in having something that they can publish. All right? And sometimes, you know, they have an observation that is really limited, but they make a very big deal about an observation that is limited that has not been reproduced or repeated a lot to make it robust. Robustness is a sign of good science because it can be replicated. Okay, and that applies to everybody. Us, a big company, academics, everyone. What were your first steps that you took to get where you are now? The first steps... I'm just trying to think about it figuratively and literally, all right? Um, I would say a big step I took is I was thinking big and and I, I wanted to go far, okay? I could have stayed in Argentina... I, you know, I, I was a very good student. I knew the, the, you know, the people I could have. It would have been relatively easy for me to be in Argentina as a doctor and be successful by whatever means that it is. But, you know, I wanted more. I wanted the best. I wanted to be in the best place. I wanted to be the best I could be. And I knew the, the United States was the best place to get a medical education. And, you know, that I, I would say was the most fundamental decision I made in my life uh, that really was, you know, life is full of forks, guys. Okay? We walk on the road. You know, the road lets travel. I'm sure a lot of you have read the poem. But it really, that's what it's about. It's forks in the road that, you know, we take one or we take the other one. And in that case, I would say the, the fork that was the most meaningful fork for me in my life was about the decision to come to the United States. And it wasn't easy. I was alone. Many nights, I cried, I was sad, I was away from my family. Um, You know, it was a huge effort. As I said, I lived in a very rough place. Um, It was was challenging, but, you know, what kept me going was the belief that that was going to take me to a better place. So suffering and sacrifice can be tolerated in the context of looking far away. If you look just at here, I feel terrible, you know, I'm far away from my parents, and I, you know, if you look at that moment there, then I should have gone home, because it was really hard. But I kept thinking, no, this is a means. This suffering, this sacrifice, is a means to go where I want to go. That's the only way you can do it. If you just think about the pain at that moment, we will all bolt, because it's hard. But the inspiration for us is that, that goal, you know, that we have set for ourselves. And that's what gives us the strength that you need in those moments. Thank you. All right. Uh, so my question is, what's the possibility of an HIV vaccine? Uh, we've been trying to, and I work myself on, uh, you know, on trying to uh, work on an HIV vaccine when I was doing uh, research in the lab. It's possible. It's tricky in that, you know, from a technical perspective, the virus survives by changing so much and by developing the mechanisms that allows us to hide from our immune system. So the immune system doesn't recognize it, all right? It's very, you know, the way that it works, you know. Viruses essentially are you know, a piece of nucleic acid, either RNA or DNA, surrounded by a membrane. 
all right? And that membrane, in the case of HIV, has a lot of sugars on it, sugar molecules on it, okay? That allows us to be more difficult to recognize to the way our immune system works, okay? But we are working on ways of, there are some uh, people, some patients that have antibodies that are able to neutralize the, the, their virus, okay? You know, this, one interesting thing in science, very interesting thing in science, is the, the oddities, not the normal, but the oddities. So that one patient that is able to neutralize their virus out of millions of patients, that patient has a very interesting answer for us from a scientific perspective. And that's how we have to focus on those abnormalities because they open clues for how it could be done. So I would say probably, I would say by 2030, we will have an HIV vaccine. But it takes time. Thank you for your question. What are your advice for people who lack self-confidence? But clearly, if you lack self-confidence, you did great, all right? So you're asking the question. So thank you. Thank you for your question. What is my advice for people that lack self-confidence? Um, self-confidence, as the word implies, is you, is your emotion. It's an emotion, okay? We are emotional beings. No matter how much we want to rationalize, you know, we are emotional beings, and we cannot downplay the, 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 the enormous impact our emotions play in who we are. It's very important that we understand our emotions, all right? I think that a, a first step in somebody that has low self-confidence is understanding that one has low self-confidence. Okay, that in itself is something important. It's not that you are, you are, you are gonna be a failure or a loser, it's that you have low self-confidence, okay? That's a huge step. The second one is to be surrounded by people that make you feel positive, okay? That's really important, really important. People that support you, people that make you feel good, people that make you feel good about yourself. That's part of a healthy response to lack of self-confidence, okay? Because it's hard that you can do it yourself. Self-confidence is part of your own perception of yourself and what you project on others are seeing you, okay? They think I'm a loser, but that's you thinking that you're a loser, all right? It's not them necessarily. So I would say that a reflection about yourself, I also think that, you know, again, this is my own perspective, is cultural, this issue, but I really think counseling is a wonderful, wonderful tool. I resorted to it many times in my life, uh, it's a great way of learning how to think about yourselves from a perspective that is health, helpful, you know, and unemotional. Uh, so I think, again, many times in my life I have resorted to counseling to resolve some of those emotional issues that we are affected by. Okay, so I think good company, being surrounded by the right people, understand why you, f I mean, that you feel that way, and then seek additional support, maybe some professional support that can help us get over it. Hi. Um, 
Um, so my question is, are you happy with what you do? Ultimately, that's the ultimate question, all right? That's the only question that matters at some level, especially if what makes you happy is good because some, there's some people that are happy doing bad things, okay? So if you're happy doing good things, that's a good answer. I'm very happy doing what I do. I'm, I'm very happy. I'll tell you what. I would say probably this is one of the happiest moments that I've had in a while. I'm a, very, I'm a happy person. But I would say being with you guys here is one of the happiest moments I've had in a long time. Because to hear your questions, your thoughts, um, the fact that I can be a little bit of an influence to you, a positive influence to you, makes me extremely, extremely happy. And I have to say, I, 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 for me in life, I'm at a point, you know, I was always about professional success, professional success, professional success, going up, going up, going up, you know, and I have. But that's not where happiness is. That's external. Happiness is internal. You know, it's how do I feel about myself and the life and the, the world I live in, you know? It's about that emotion, about it's something very personal. And I have to say, the reason why I said what I said earlier about being positive, a positive influence to others, is because that's where I am today in my understanding of what life is about. When I was 18 and I wanted to, you know, come to the States and be a great doctor, be a great scientist, I wanted to be a Nobel Prize, okay? That was okay because it gave me the energy to do all those things. But from my perspective now, after I've achieved all that external stuff, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. You know, the day I die, I don't want to die and say, okay, he, you know, he was ahead of, of the side or he was great in Johnson & Johnson. That one would not be that important. All I want people to say is he was a good guy. That's it. If people say he was a good guy, I will be so happy. You know, and that's kind of like where I am today. I am like... What really matters is how we positively influence other human beings that come in our path. And that, to me, lately has become kind of the secret of happiness. And that's why I'm very happy. Thank you.